On today's episode, Dr. Charlotte Acor and I discuss billing and coding. Dr. Acor completed her undergrad at Yale, went to medical school at West Virginia University, and then did an ophthalmology residency at my alma mater of SUNY Buffalo. She then did two fellowships, one in pediatric ophthalmology at the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Hospital and an ophthalmologic pathology fellowship at Emory. She's the former head of pediatric ophthalmology at the faculty of the University of Texas at Houston Health Sciences Center and is now in a hospital-based practice in Abilene, Texas. She lectures nationally and coaches on billing and coding and is the Amazon best-selling author of Medical Coding Decoded. So in this interview, we discuss the necessary history, physical, and medical decision-making that you need in order to bill and code appropriately, and then we get into the weeds about proper coding specifically of medical decision-making, because this is really the most complicated aspect of those three. We go through some examples of medical decision-making with diagnoses of varying complexity, and then we get into time-based codes and how to appropriately document for this. We end with the common modifiers and some newer codes that are frequently missed in the primary care setting. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Ecor, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. For the listeners, we were actually just having a very lively discussion about different styles of figuring out how to get the, the billing and coding done. So uh, for, for us, it was a very interesting discussion, and I hope it is for the listeners as well, because today we're going to talk about the topic that everybody wants to know, but nobody wants to learn, and that's billing and coding. So, so Dr. Acor, you started your book talking about medical decision-making. So why did you, that's, you know, generally there's the history, there's the physical, and then there's medical decision-making, but you went backwards to forwards. Why did you start with medical decision-making? Well, I started with medical decision-making because as a physician, that is the part that I had the worst, the hardest problem billing and coding, you know, figuring out that schema. And from the billing and coding classes that I have been taking, the teachers were saying doctors undercode and undervalue their work. Understanding medical decision-making will actually allow us to value our work. However, since I have been coaching other physicians on billing and coding for the last six months, I've just found out that different people have different deficiencies in their billing and coding. For example, some people don't know how to take the appropriate level of history, a comprehensive history. Some people don't know exactly what, how many review of systems you need to have a comprehensive history. Some people don't know what the examination guidelines that are needed to have those, that comprehensive examination for the highest level of codes. And some people document very well, but they are unaware of the additional add-on codes that they're able to use that they're already doing and counseling their patients for those problems. They just don't know you know, how to code for those, how to use modifiers to get paid for that work. So 
the reason why I started my, the, my book on medical decision-making was the problem that I've had, but I found out there's lots of different problems with medical billing and coding and learning the fundamentals and making a commitment to continue to learn and open your mind will make you a better biller and coder and hopefully you know, prevent you from losing money in a medical audit. Well, I think for, for history and physical, that, that seems just a bit of rote memorization, right? Like you need a certain number of things in the history to build a certain level. You need a certain number of, of parts to your physical exam to build a certain level. It seems like for our listeners, they can just look up the CMS guidelines for the minimum you need for each level and just make themselves a cheat sheet, right? Like a little cheat sheet that they can keep next to their computer so that when they're when they're deciding what code, they can make sure that they listen to the heart and lungs or make sure that they look in the ear and the nose or make sure that they did those things that that's commensurate with the complexity of the medical decision-making. You'd think that, but I think billing and coding training is somewhat lacking in residency or I remember as a medical student, they tell you to go and interview a patient and write things down, but I don't remember it being very explicit saying, well, when you ask a patient about their chief complaint, you need to make sure that you know when it started, you you know when it started, are there any exacerbation factors, duration, onset. So I think as all as medical students, we all took a history and we probably had a lot of those elements written down, but in, pra- in practice, you have your assistant do that. So if you are just reviewing what your assistant has said, you may not have that written down. And like you said, not everybody has that cheat sheet. So yes, that's something that's very easy to correct, but it's not always taught. And the same thing with the physical examination, because just because you can do the examination doesn't mean that it's pertinent to your it's pertinent to your problem. The, the heart of billing and coding and when you get into the established codes is really that medical decision-making. Yeah, I think what you're saying is you can't get blood from a stone, right? So if you're right. seeing someone with some very simple problem, if you do an extraordinarily extensive history, an extraordinarily extensive physical exam, because you only need two, two out of three of those things to match up to, to get your code, and then the problem is, extra, is is very simple. You're doing exactly that. You're getting the blood from a, from the stone. So you really need your medical decision making to the code. I've seen it happen the other way around too. People go to doctors and they're sick. For example, I had an opportunity to work with maternal fetal medicine doctor, a high risk doctor, right? People who go and see the high risk doctor, they're referred to the high risk doctor because they are high risk. So the high risk doctor is doing examinations that have that moderate medical decision making. Who knows, even that high um, complexity medical decision making, it's time for your baby to be delivered tomorrow, right? Here's the ultrasound that I did in my office and I also did your blood work and I checked your urine and it's time for your baby to be delivered yesterday. But if their history isn't of the complex variety, if their examination is not of the complex variety, you know, when those patients are sent to that doctor and they're not billed as consults, that physician is leaving money on the table. So, so there are a lot of doctors that 
undercode. You know, you think, oh, well, there's all these doctors who are overcoding, like you're saying, trying to make something that's very simple, complex. I don't really think that's the case. I think that doctors are taking care of complex medical problems and all the elements need to align to be able to get paid maximally for their work. Oh, no, just don't misunderstand me. I, I think the majority of the time, people are probably undercoding rather than overcoding. I think that's, I was just trying to interpret your statement of, you know, the medical decision-making really needs to be kind of the the captain of the ship. You can't have a very simple problem and then and then inflate your code. Um, but probably what most people are doing is they're afraid of overcoding. And so they're they're assuming a, a less complicated code than, than, than they need to be. But I, I think history and physical, well, first for our listeners, and tell me if you, if you agree or you disagree, if you're billing at a certain level, you need, and it's a new patient, you need the history, the physical, and the medical decision-making to all match up. Yes. And if you have one that's lower than the other two in terms of the, the, the code that you can bill for, then you have to round down to that lower code. If it's an established patient, now you only need two out of three of those things. So between history, physical, and medical decision-making, only two of those things need to match up. So if you have a very complicated medical decision-making, very complicated history, the physical doesn't matter, um, and, and, and vice versa. And you know, we said earlier, the history, you can make yourself a cheat sheet for what you need for different levels, the physical, and it also, the physical depends on your specialty. So, uh, you know, what is considered a, a complex um, code for physical exam for an ophthalmologist is clearly going to be different from an otolaryngologist because mm-hmm. they're not asking you to do a mirror exam of the larynx and assess the hearing, right? So that's that's something for one of our more complicated physical exam codes. So just have to memorize that. Let's get into the weeds a bit with the medical decision making, okay. right? Because that's really where the meat is. Can you just give us an outline of how you arrive at a code for, for medical decision making? I usually like to choose the, so there's there's three columns. I like to focus on the third column last. So the risk of complications or morbidity and mortality. I'm going to give you a couple examples. I'm an ophthalmologist. If I don't treat a patient and they go blind, then I consider the loss of vision a moderate morbid morbidity and mortality. So if someone is coming to me with a vision-threatening condition, meaning um, amblyopia, loss of vision because of their eyes are misaligned, that one eye sees differently than another, um, then um, I've already got that 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 risk of morbidity or mortality. I mean, blindness is a serious a serious medical problem. So I start there. You know, if somebody's not going blind, then I'm somewhere in the low to minimal, but most people are coming to the ophthalmologist. At least I'm, my subspecialty is pediatric ophthalmologist. They have some form of vision loss. Which risk is that? And so for all the listeners, I would recommend that you Google table of risk, because that's going to get you to the table that we're talking about right now. And and I can link up uh, an example of that in in the show notes. So which which risk, if you're talking about loss of vision, is that uh, minimal, low, moderate, or high? Well, I consider it moderate. So if the patient's parents do not comply with my therapy, then, you know, the risk of vision loss is moderate. And so the American Academy of Ophthalmology does a really good job of training their physicians on billing and coding. And they just talk about how ophthalmologists really undervalue their work. So 
the difference between moderate and high, especially for an ophthalmologist, is a high risk is if somebody has a ruptured globe or retinal detachment or really high intraocular pressure that really needs to be treated emergently. The risk of morbidity and mortality, morbidity or mortality in the ophthalmologist case is blindness is very high because it's very acute in that moment within 24 hours. The other blinding conditions like, like amblyopia or strabismus, we have time to fix those. So the risk of morbidity and mortality, I consider those moderate. I also want to draw our listeners' attention to the fact that on the same level as that, so there are three there are three columns. There's presenting problems, diagnostic procedures, and management options. On that same moderate risk is prescription drug management. So that's also if you if you put the patient on prescription eye drops or you give them an antibiotic, there um, that 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 also gets you to a moderate risk. And I think physicians are probably undervaluing the the significance of the condition for something that they're just giving a prescription drug for. And I know, and, and I definitely, that's what we're, we're, we're undervaluing our work, right? Because if we aren't giving glaucoma drops, that patient's going to lose their vision. If we're not giving antibiotics for a corneal ulcer, then that person's going to lose their vision. Now, if there's a corneal ulcer in the center of their eye and their cornea is going to melt and cause an open globe, that risk of morbidity and mortality will be high. But the the corneal ulcer, the um, glaucoma, ophthalmologists or medical doctors and they're dealing with a lot of blinding conditions. The moderate complexity this medical decision-making schema should be able to be obtained. So first, I like to start with the column of the risk of complications and morbidity and mortality. And then the next column that I usually go to is the amount and or complexity of data to be reviewed. I'm an ophthalmologist. We have several we have several forms of testing in our office, a refraction when we even figure out what a patient's glasses prescription is considered a test. We take a picture of the back of the eye that's considered a test. So we have testing that we perform and that we review that that allows us to be in that column. And then the same as, you know, a, a primary care doctor who is is um, performing an EKG on a patient, who's getting blood work on a patient, who is reviewing their patient's chest x-ray, who is, you know, going to order a, a stress test. That's where you, in that second column, the amount and or complexity of, of data to be reviewed is where you would get that moderate uh, number or letter in that row to go across with your medical decision-making capacity so or medical decision-making. So you need two or three. And then if you're a person that loves to list different differential diagnosis or management options, then the moderate medical decision-making, you need to be able to list multiple diagnosis or multiple management options or for the high level extensive diagnosis or extensive uh, management options. So 
um, back to medical school, I, I wasn't very good at making a long list of differential diagnosis. So I usually shy away from that one, but I'm willing to help anybody go through that list with the main problems that that they see day in and day out. And and one thing that we discussed before the show was that you're a pediatric ophthalmologist. And so anytime you're obtaining a history, unless it's an older teenager, you're obtaining the histories from someone other than the patient. And you actually get two data points. And I'll I'll read this from CMS. It says, review and summary of, I don't know why the grammar isn't right, but review and summary of old records and or obtaining history from someone other than the patient and or discuss discussion of case with another health provider and documentation of relevant findings. But in that is obtaining history from someone other than the patient. So if you have uh, a patient with confusion or dementia and you're obtaining the history from a caregiver, or if you have a child and you're obtaining the history from a patient, you already have two data points. So that brings you up to moderate already. So then you just need enough of a diagnosis or enough of a risk. And there, and that's a, that's a simple. So I think one thing that you, you put in your book that I, that I loved was you recommend come up with your 10 most common problems. So you challenge the readers to come up with their 10 most common diagnoses that they see and figure out what the medical decision-making is. So then you don't need to think of it on the fly. And I think by sitting there for the maybe 20 minutes that it takes to, to go through this and do your homework, not only will they know the codes at the snap of their finger, but our colleagues are going to just understand the whole process a whole lot better. And we're leaving a whole lot of money on the table, right? You, this is what you say, right? You, need, you like educating your colleagues so that they can maximize the income that they deserve, that they've earned, because the medical, the complexity of the patient is there. They just need to know the code. One of my best buddies is a, neuro- a neurologist. So she attended the online Facebook program that I had about, you know, one day I did history, the next day I did physical, and then the third day I did the medical decision-making capacity. And she actually did that exercise on some of her um, ep- epilepsy patients. You know, if you have an epilepsy patient, right, that's not well controlled, you know, the risk of morbidity and mortality is high. You know, what testing did she have to do to learn more about that epileptic patient? And then you say if the epileptic patient has, you know, is is has some mental disabilities because they've had longstanding epilepsy, or if the patient has developmental delay or doesn't speak because the because they have epilepsy, she was saying, wow, you know, billing all my patients as level fours, maybe some of my really sick patients, I should be billing as level fives. So I really do agree with you. I think it really helps to take your top 10 diagnosis because we do the same thing every day, right? You need to take your top 10 diagnosis and make sure that you can bill and code comfortably for those charts. Ultimately, if you get audited, actually, it's not if you get audited, it's when you get audited that your documentation reflects your work and you get paid for your work. So I had another colleague who's a neurologist and he got audited and CMS said, all the charts you gave us, you undercoded. Well, he they're not going to go back and give him his money back. He still had to go through the audits. So you don't protect yourself from an audit by undercoding. You just save the government money. You might not know the answer to this, but does the government extrapolate 
Do they do clawbacks where they say, well, we've reviewed uh, 3% of your charts and we found that you overcoded in for X amount of money. So now we're going to extrapolate that to 100% of your charts and you owe us X amount of money. I'm not sure if they extrapolate, but I know they can do clawbacks. They do the clawbacks and they have those rack audits. They pay those auditors to claw through your charts and take money back. So there are certain diagnoses and ophthalmologies. One thing I said, well, you need to know the fundamentals and then you need to take your billing and coding education to the next level. The American Academy of Ophthalmology and other subspecialty societies have their billing and coding updates. So you need to, physicians need to attend those or have somebody in their office attend those so they know what the auditors are looking for. So this year they were talking about there's a special test that ophthalmologists can do that if you, you're only allowed to do it 12 times a year. So if you do it 13 times a year, you get a big ding and then they come and look at all your charts. Yes, the government can claw back things. And so you have to make sure that you are billing and coding properly and that you're also up to date on what areas that the government is looking for to take the money back. Can you walk us through how you would code medical decision-making for a common outpatient problem like headache? Headache has to be one of the most common reasons for a visit to the primary care physician, ER, urgent care, neurologist, ENT, we see a lot of it. So can you just walk us through the medical decision-making for something like a headache? So the headache is something that spans all specialties, and it really depends on, well, really, what your true differential diagnosis is. So, you know, I'm an ophthalmologist. I get headache referrals from the neurologist to make sure that the optic nerve isn't swollen. It really depends on the history of the headache. So the history is very important. When did the headache start? How long had the headache been has been going on? And really almost what studies have been done. So let me um, talk about headache from the ophthalmologist standpoint. So an ophthalmologist, ophthalmologists have a unique set of codes in the um, CPT book. We have I codes and we can actually use the evaluation and management codes. Ophthalmology, the evaluation and management codes are a little bit more stringent for us to use if there are really no abnormalities found. A lot of times patients are sent to the ophthalmologist for headache and nothing is found. They don't need glasses. Their eye has the perfect structure. So an ophthalmologist would actually build that code, will build that as the, the eye code, where if they were going to bill it in the evaluation and management system, it would be low complexity, right? So there's the risk of morbidity and mortality is very low for that headache because there's the ophthalmologist was asked to look at the eyes to see if there was anything linking the, the optic nerves or increased intracranial pressure to the, the headache. And ophthalmologists don't treat migraines. So, you know, they're not going to go through the number of management options, you know, hey, go back to your neurologist. And usually when the ophthalmologist examines somebody with a headache, and a CAT scan or MRI may or may not have been done. So, a headache for an ophthalmologist, you know, may be a low complexity or a level three new patient exam unless they see swelling of the optic nerve and then that could 
be a serious condition which would re- would increase the medical decision-making capacity to moderate because pseudotumor cerebri is a really serious condition where increased intracranial pressure shows up in the eyes and it's a cause of headaches. And I think that goes into that table of risk presenting problems, moderate risk, uh, the, the way that they describe it is undiagnosed new problem with uncertain prognosis. Yes. And a neurologist, you know, usually the neurologist is the last person to get the headache, right? So, you know, they would have had the MRI done. They would have gotten a bunch of data from the PCP. Obviously, the headache is so bad that you're going to the neurologist. It's causing a person to miss work, debilitating. Um, And when the person gets to the neurologist for headache management, they've been on a lot of medications already. You know, the neurologist holds the toolkit for headache management. They even have headache neurologists now. So there are so many pharmacological methods to treat headache. They're doing Botox in the neck for headache now. They're doing other injections for headache. So that headache, when when the headache is being examined, you know, by the neurologist, then, you know, you're going into moderate complexity or it could even, you know, be high complexity if if that that headache is, say, pseudotumor or if it's chronic migraine where somebody's failed tons of medication, that's moderate complexity. You And if, if the headache starts at the PCP, right, it's all about the history, where your differential diagnosis is going. So the headache could present to the primary care doctor as a manifestation of a brain tumor or pseudotumor. So it's, it's with billing and coding, it's actually really just documenting what our medical decision and thought process is. But if you're thinking your patient with headache isn't just a you know stress or attention headache that can be solved with some some Tylenol, then you know that would be a low complexity headache. Hey, you got a headache? It's new. Just go take some Tylenol. Then you really need to be in that moderate decision making capacity area to get paid for your work because you're working up this person's headache. Did that answer your question? Yes. 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 Thank you for differentiated between moderate and high risk. You know, you mentioned specific to ophthalmology. One of the things that they that they have in high risk for presenting problems would be an abrupt change in neurological status. Yes. For example, seizure, TIA, weakness, sensory loss. So if you have a patient with vision loss, that gets you to high risk. Yes. And just to reiterate, because I think that repetition is necessary, that's only one column of medical decision-making. Actually, I don't think we, we even mentioned it. That's only one column of medical right. decision-making. You need two out of the three columns Correct. of medical decision-making to be, to be high enough. Otherwise, you need to round down. If your risk is high enough for, a, say, a 99215 and your, and your data is high enough for a 99215, it doesn't matter what the first column is. So you need two out of three of those to be to, to match. But if you have high risk, 99215, but the data is, you know, a 99212 and the diagnosis is a 99212, then it's still a 99212. You've got to round down to that. But I think, yeah, you'd have to round round down. But I think because you are, I think... You, because you are, so if the risk of morbidity and mortality is high, so we're saying, like you said, that change in mental status, that that what is the 
management options for that change in mental status. It's not minimal. It's not limited. It's like, it, you know, it's probably multiple to extensive. So almost if you have an illness that is acute and is serious and needs treatment, then your management options or your number of diagnoses are almost going to be multiple or extensive. So it's almost like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to have someone, basically, if you're not into one five, this patient could be dying. Right. So there's it's never going to be a circumstance where that patient is billed at a nine, nine, two. No, no. I was just using it as, as, okay. as an example to just clarify that you need two out of three of those, of those columns to match. Yeah. I, I again, this is where, where doctors may be undervaluing their service. Yes. Yeah. If you, if, if you have a patient that, that, that is that sick, then inevitably you'll have either enough diagnoses or enough data to, to, to match as long as you document that. And that's, that's the key to all this is, is that all of it needs to be documented because when the auditor comes, that's all they're looking at. They don't know what was in your head at the time. They just know it was on, what's on the paper. Would I write an, an, a note about amblyopia and I bill a level four? I don't always say, well, without treatment, this child is going to go blind. I say counsel the parent that the child is going to go blind. But I don't say that with every visit. But I think that is definitely implied in the chart note. So oh, yes, the diagnosis. We, yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's and that's the other thing is don't. I think my documentation, if you compare it to some of my partners, is is probably excessive. That being said, I use a dictation. I, I use drag. I, I actually don't have a scribe. I do all my own documentation, but I have a dictation. I have dictation software, so I dictate everything. So my my explanation in my medical decision making is always probably a little more verbose than it needs to be. And um, I, I wanted to mention one thing. I have been following a bunch of Facebook groups um, and one person and why it's so important that physicians know the rules about medical decision-making these, you have to have two of the three columns. Somebody wrote in that she took a job that the, the, the hospital or practice that she worked for said, you have to have all three columns or we're going to have that be the lowest. So her employer is causing her to bill under code and under bill. So you have to know what the billing coding rules so you're not signing a contract that will will hold you to some yeah some some unrealistic insane standard. Yeah, I mean listen, CMS is strict enough. There's no reason for us to be harder on ourselves than CMS. You know, it, it's just what you said. Know your know your worth. Know your worth, and it's probably more than you think it is. And so I think for that, let's segue into the time-based codes, uh, because I, I personally have some questions about this, uh, specifically the documentation. So let's say let's say you're billing based on a, on a time-based code. And this is easy enough for our, our listeners to look up, you know, how much time you need to spend with a new patient versus how much time you need to spend with a follow-up patient uh, to, to code for each level. But how do you document? For this? How do you say, I spent 45 minutes with this patient and then document 45 minutes worth of conversation? So the example that I like to use is, and, and you had shared that you were going to be talking to some pediatricians soon, is that the example that the American Academy of Pediatrics gave was a patient who came back for a return visit for their ADHD medication. Well, when the the return visit happened, 
the mother came where when she wasn't at the first visit. So if you would just use the evaluation and management guidelines based on the history and or physical and medical decision-making capacity because the child is doing so well, right? It would be a level three, a low complexity. Hey, you know, how's he doing on his Ritalin? Oh, great. Okay, well, wonderful. Keep his Ritalin, right? That would be the level three. But the pediatrician had to go back and, you know, recounsel the mother. Well, this is why your child is on Ritalin. You know, these are the things that you need to look out for. This is a Ritalin holiday. You know, this is what we'll do in the summer. So basically, when a physician bills based on time, they have to put whatever history they did, if they did an exam, and talk about what they counseled on. So that pediatrician could say, I had to counsel the mother on why the child was on Ritalin, what side effects to look out for, answered all her concerns and fears about the medication, um, talked about a Ritalin holiday, and that visit took 45 minutes. Is that time, does that include the history and physical, or that time is only for the counseling portion? so, So when you bill based on time, half of the time has to be spent counseling. A level five established code has to be 45 minutes at long. So half of that 45 minutes has to be spent on counseling. So, you know, the doctor could be talking to the mother for 30 minutes about the Ritalin. You know, she's crying. They consoled her. That is a 45-minute visit. The doctor has to explain what took 45 minutes when that visit should have just been a quick established visit. But the doctor can justify that level five code based on time if half of that 45 minutes was spent on counseling, but he, they, he just can't say, well, I just counseled the patient about their ADHD medicine. He, they have, he, has, he or she has to say what they talked about for the 25 minutes, half of that um, time-based visit of that medication management. Okay, so you can... So you can bill for a 45-minute long visit if half of that time was spent, if at least half of that time was spent counseling because you're effectively being paid for the counseling. Correct. Okay. Can we talk briefly about some of the modifiers that you have found that people get tripped up on? Do you have any favorite modifiers or least favorite modifiers? Well, I think, well... The modifier that everybody talks about um, is modifier 25. It's, you know, doing two different evaluation and management codes, meaning a visit and a procedure in the case of primary care doctors, doing a wellness visit and a sick visit all, all at the same time and the challenge of being paid for both of them. And modifier 33 is the almost equivalent to modifier 25, it's the the modifier you're supposed to put with the wellness visit to get paid for the wellness visit and the sick visit at the same time. But the key to modifier 25 is really separate and identifiable, separate and identifiable. So I've seen people 
say, well, I'm, I'm an OBGYN, I'm doing an annual exam, the patient I have has high blood pressure, I told them to just go get their blood pressure managed by their PCP, and I've heard that people try to bill for their, the, the woman's annual wellness visit and an evaluation management code. Well, that's not really separate and identifiable, right? That, that doctor isn't managing that patient's blood pressure. Now, if that, that patient goes for their annual exam and they're found to have an STD, and obviously that now is an acute issue, then one, they bill for their annual wellness visit, and two, they bill for the evaluation management and treatment of the STD. So I think the key is separate and identifiable. And just because the evaluation or the CPT book says we can bill for it, the insurance companies are always looking at those codes. And sometimes even with the wellness visit and the sick visit, when you sign that contract with Blue Cross Blue Shield or United Healthcare, they may specifically put in their plan language that you cannot bill an annual visit and a sick visit in the same day. We don't care that there's a code for it. You've signed your contract with us and that's how it, those are our rules. You signed up for it and that's how it's going to be. Yeah, we, we find that too, that just, you know, CMS has their rules and by and large, the insurance company use those rules, but every so often they will have their own take on the rule. Like there are sometimes that they require us to use modifiers that CMS doesn't doesn't necessarily use. And it just seems that there's no rhyme or reason behind that. But that's for whatever reason what they've they've decided to do. So we like to think that the rules work for every insurance company, but they're written by CMS and then modified by the insurance company as they see as they see fit. Yeah. Um, yeah CMS makes the standards, but the insurance company, they get to make their own rules and they are trying to keep their money. I mean, the one thing about CMS and Medicare, they are, they're usually very straightforward. They publish their rules. You know, Medicare is administered by regions. So you can go online and they're very transparent about what documentations that you need for um, a procedure. They're very transparent about their CCI edits. They're very, very transparent about what they expect, you know, what's on their admission list. But the other insurances aren't that transparent. So I think we're, we're running out of time here. But I, I, to, to close, I'd like you to tell us just one or two other things that are common mistakes that you see patients make when either you're giving a talk and answering questions or you're coaching an individual physician or practice of of physicians? What are some common coding mistakes that you see where people are leaving money on the table or maybe, maybe coding more than they should be? Well, one, I think everybody needs to start with some fundamentals. And I think one thing as especially new residents and new residents that are doing primary care, pediatrics, internal medicine, family medicine. There were a lot of rule changes with the Affordable Care Act. So making sure that they are billing for smoking sensation counseling, knowing their those codes, knowing what documentation is required for their, those codes. Primary care doctors, especially the ones who admit patients or the ones who don't even admit patients, but get patients that were hospitalized and then come to their office. Um, CMS and Medicare have special 
chronic care codes, transition of care codes that if physicians aren't using these codes and putting these systems in place um, to get those patients' uh, phone calls made and procedures in their practice, they're losing money. So really, I don't know in in residency where they are telling new physicians, hey, there are all these additional codes in addition to the evaluation and management codes that you can be billing uh, billing for. Smoking sensation, depression evaluation, chronic care codes, extra time, transition of care codes. It's it's like there's there needs to be a workshop somewhere with the fundamentals and then they need to just grow on their that knowledge every year to find out what the coding updates are. And when physicians figure out how they're paid and um, what they're paid, then they ultimately, I hope they become better advocates of talking, being active in their medical society, talking to their legislatures, legislators and say, hey, this is the hard work I'm doing for your patient, my patient. Let's make sure that we are getting paid appropriately for our work. So in addition to making sure that we're doing these things in the office, if we're doing this in a vacuum and we're not letting Washington or I'm from Texas, Austin, um, I know if you're from New York, Albany, know what we're doing, then, you know, it doesn't matter what we bill or code, they're going to, you know, value all those codes at $5. And that actually brings us to season one, episode two with Jennifer Tassler, where she taught us how to get involved in advocacy. What is the minimum involvement for the highest return on investment? So you can get involved in your specialty society, advocate for your profession to make sure that we are being compensated appropriately. So if, uh, so, uh, after you finish this episode, definitely circle back to, to, to that one so you can learn how to effectively advocate for, for our profession. Dr. Acord, this has really been uh, very informative for myself and I'm sure for the listeners as well. Uh, where, where can people find you online? Uh, you can uh, find me online. Uh, my website is www.drcharlottemd.com. Um, I use the same handle on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, Dr. Charlotte, MD, and um, you can get my book online at www.medicalcodingdecoded101.com. And it is a quick read, a very understandable book, and for not that much time, it'll probably help you boost your income quite a bit so that you can start coding uh, more appropriately and get get what you're owed. So once again, Dr. Acor, thank you so much for your time. It's been very informative and a pleasure. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.